Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, everybody. Hey, uh, if, whether you're uh, right here on our campus or watching on our live stream, I just want to say welcome to Sunridge. And you can tell we have a really cheery passage we're going to be looking at today from the Bible. Uh, thank you, Becca, for reading that to us. Um, if you guys don't know me, my name's Britt. I serve here as the lead pastor. And uh, every first Monday of the month, you have an opportunity to spend time with me and uh, other of our staff. Uh, we have a welcome to Sunridge right after that first service. So that's coming up November 5th. And we're also going to be baptizing on November 5th. So if you uh, have uh, confessed Christ, but you never followed him in obedience to be baptized, uh, you'll be hearing more about that as the date grows closer. I encourage you to take that step. I wonder how many of you uh, have ever heard the phrase barn fever. Anybody? Barn fever? Wow. Okay. Sparse out there. If you've been around horses at some time in your life, then you're going to be familiar with this. And I learned it first at uh, Shady Grove Youth Camp, uh, where I worked as a counselor and uh, activities director for three summers. And Shady Grove Camp sat on about 750 acres in the center almost smack dab in the center of Florida, and we had horse rides as a feature uh, offered to our campers. So several times a day, 15 to 20 campers uh, of various ages would be taking, t taken out to go on a horse ride and, and be led by a horse expert. Now, I was deemed one of those expert horse ride leaders after being trained by my friend in one day who also became an expert like I did by being trained in one day. So, uh, you know, needless to say, these horses faced a lot of abuse, and uh, it was not fun to be a horse at a church youth camp. They were really difficult to round up, so uh, me and my other friend that was an expert, we figured out that a BB gun helped. And uh, don't worry, it was not a powerful BB gun. Just one of those cock ones. And you could, we actually used to have BB gun fights with these BB guns, and it had an arc to it. So, but it did get the horse's attention. And uh, they were, I'm not saying it was right. Don't be hating. Uh, and they were super uncooperative in other ways, like when we were saddling them, they would swell up their chest. Is this what horses do? I think I should know that since I was an expert. <clears throat> and uh, so if you didn't get the saddle on tight, it would roll with a camper on it. Um, but it was really on the final leg of any horse ride when the barn and the corral came into view uh, of the horses that the horses really showed their impatience. So any camper that would even remotely allow their horse uh, to pick up speed as we turned a corner into a meadow and you could see the barn and the corral, uh, if, if that horse got above a slow walk, it would go from that slow walk to cantering and then trotting and then to a full gallop. 
And uh, then that would create kind of a mob mentality among the other horses. So we would have a stampede uh, going back. And I would have third and fourth graders uh, who've never ridden a horse before bouncing in their saddle, bouncing off their saddles and into the meadow. And there was always a lot of crying involved. That's barn fever. And I have to tell you that uh, those horses didn't like their job at all. Uh, carrying kids around in the woods and the swamps and meadows of the center of mid-state of Florida in the middle of the summer was not fun. And uh, they really should have found a different source of employment than us. But um, it was their impatience with the barn and the corral, the end game in sight, that they just lost themselves. And um, they just wanted to get that kid off their back and get back to the barn. And of course, who could blame them? So we're, we're nearing the end of our study of the life of Moses here. And it just seems to me that as I, as I read through numbers, uh, as I prepared for this message, the Israelites have a case of barn fever. And who could blame them? They've been in the desert for 40 years. And now for the first time in 39 years, they're heading in a direction of the land that God has promised for them, the land of their spiritual ancestry. And that's going to be about six months from this period that we're going to look at today. But this is a place that God has made for them. And they, they can almost taste it. Remember the last time they were at the southern border of the promised land, they sent spies in to check out the situation. And they had every opportunity uh, given to them by God to take the land as God wanted them to do, but they failed to trust him. And they folded in the face of adversity. And uh, that was, that. remember, that was just a, about a year after they had left Egypt, after they had escaped the oppression and slavery there. But now in Numbers 21, it's been almost 39 years since Israel sent those 12 men into the land to spy it out. And what do you think happened during this almost 40-year period as they wandered around in the desert? It was constant complaining, grumbling, rebellion, and insurrection. Uh, and it's, it's really overwhelming when you think about, of all the things that could have been recorded in the life of the children of God at this time, these are their defining moments. They constantly complained about food. I heard chuckles today as Becca read. The food wasn't tasty enough, even though it was saving their lives and it was a miraculous provision by God, it just wasn't good enough. They complained about who was in charge. Why is Moses in charge? Who made him the boss of us? And their com the complaining came from every corner of the nation of Israel. There were other leaders like Korah and the priests that complained. Even Moses' own brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, were complaining about him. And they second-guessed all of his decisions. He can't lead us to victory in battle. We should pick another leader. And at one point, the Bible says that the entire community grumbled against Moses. So literally, everybody is against him. And last week, we saw how that took its toll on Moses. And Moses failed to trust God too. In that moment, and in utter frustration, 
He loses it, and he strikes the rock before the people when God told him to speak to the rock. And this chapter that we're looking at today, Numbers 21, it's a tipping point for the Israelites. They're 40 years of wandering with no progress, but now things are going to change. Things are picking up. They're moving toward the land. They're experiencing victories. And maybe that's what brings out their impatience, their barn fever. But in this moment, God has something he wants to teach his people. And we're going to see today, we're going to see what that is. And then we're going to see how what happened in this moment in the children of Israel's lives has implications that reach all the way to the time of Jesus. And Jesus references this event to teach somebody something. And then we're going to roll it all together and talk about how this applies to you and me and probably one of the most foundational and relevant doctrines and relevant truths that are in the Bible and the underpinnings of Christianity. And it was all in the six verses that Becca read at the beginning of the service today. Remember, they're going back for another attempt to enter the land, but this time they're coming from the east, and they have to do it the hard way. And Numbers 20, which we're not going to look at today, but I'm just going to tell you, they requested to go through Edom and uh, on what at that time was known as the King's Highway. I'm going to put it up on the screen here. As they travel north, uh, the, if, I don't know if you can see the yellow line that was taking them up to the east side of the promised land, uh, but that is the king's highway. It's the travel route for them that made the most sense. It's, the, it's wide, it's well-traveled, armies used it, commerce used it, people used it. But the king of Edom, as you can see, is kind of in that region. He refuses to let the children of Israel travel by that route. And uh, rather than go to battle, with the Edomites, God says to them, that would be a distraction to you right now. So they take a detour, and I don't know if you can see the black line, it's just to the right of the yellow. That's the route that they take um, north to the southern part of the promised land. So they swing east, and in Numbers 21, 4, it says they travel from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea, to go around Edom. That's what they do. But this is not an easy trip. Um, it's rugged terrain. It's barren. It's arid. And so, what, so knowing that there's an easier route to go, what do you think the children of Israel did in this moment when they realized they don't get to go that way? They have to go the hard way. Can you imagine them saying, okay, Moses, we can see how this makes sense. Um, it's going to take a little longer, we realize, but it's all part of God's plan, so we're with you. Nope. The people grew impatient on the way. Now, before we are too critical of them, can, can you relate? Have you ever been in a spot where, like, something has just taken way too long and you just can't take it anymore? Like when you're waiting in the drive through at Starbucks, and the person that's in front of you seems to have not realized that they were in the Starbucks line. And they're just now thinking of their order when they get there. You know those people? And they have a car full of people. And they're like, at that point, like, you can tell. They're like, hey, what do you guys want? 
they're just not ready and you're there. Or, you know, you have a wonderful vacation up north and you, you try, you, you're coming home all happy and then you hit the traffic in LA and Pasadena and what is a two hour trip takes you four hours, you know, like that. Or maybe you're a horse with a little kid on you in mid-state Florida in the summer. You can see the barn, but it's just going to take so long. Now, were they impatient with themselves? Is that what was going on? No. In verse 5, they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. And of course, that sounds familiar to all of us. And it's similar to how they insulted God in the past in his provision when they were sick of manna, the bread-like substance, substance that God provided for them. But this time, instead of God saying, okay, how about some quail? This time in verse 6, the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. Let's pray and go home. <laughs> Whoa. I mean, one thing, it's like it doesn't pay to complain, right? That's one lesson out of this. So how about mom, the next time your kids aren't happy with what you made for dinner, you just throw a bag of venomous snakes down on the table <laughs> and tell them, eat up. This, this word venomous, uh, maybe some of your Bibles may even use the word, it can say fiery, because that was the description that... Uh, that's how people would describe being bitten by this snake. And, you know, there are all kinds of venomous snakes in this region. And, uh, but scholars say it very well could have been this one, the Palestinian viper. And uh, that is the most common venomous snake in the region. And remember, there's no, there's no antivenom at this time. There's no snake guy, Dr. Bush from Loma Linda uh, Hospital. And for all purpose, practical purposes, we, like men and women are being bit. And, uh, but can you, do you think, like, who, who do you imagine was likely to be bit more? Well, we don't know, men or women. But, but do you know that by, by far, by far the majority of snake bites, venomous snake bites, occur on males between the ages of 17 and 27. And 85% uh, of those bites are to the fingers and hands. Why do you think that is? <laughs> Almost 60% of those victims were handling the snake. And nearly 30% were intoxicated when they were doing it. So the Palestinian viper, like most snakes, is very shy. They avoid human contact. So they don't want to bite people, and we don't want them to bite us, right? But here we see God creating kind of like a reverse miracle, so to speak. He causes many snakes to converge in this area, or he creates a prolific number of them that's unusual, and he causes them to be super aggressive toward human beings. Sometimes I, I hear people say, you know, I sure would like to go back to the good old days. Not me. Not if this is the good old days. I'm like Indiana Jones in the first Raiders. Snakes, why did it have to be snakes? 
best line in that movie. So what's going on here? The Israelites must have felt a lot like me in Indiana Jones because in verse 7, they come to Moses and they said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So the people are like, we get it. We, we sinned. Moses, pray. Pray for us that God will make the snakes disappear. But as God will do, often he has a different solution than what they've come up with. And uh, this solution is going to make this more than a bad experience for the Israelites. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, and then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So here's what God did. Instead of making the snakes go away or making the people impervious to, to their bite or to just allow human beings and snakes to coexist, God directs Moses to craft a visual anti-venom. He says, sculpt a snake out of bronze and put it high on a pole so that anyone can see it from within the camp. So just picture this. Let's go there. An Israelite is walking along. Maybe he's picking up manna or some wood on the ground and they're bitten and it burns and it's fiery at the sight. So they scream out. And in a few minutes, they start to feel weak, dizzy. Their heart races. It's hard to breathe. Things are getting foggy. They fall to their knees. You know, all the things that happen to you when you're bitten by a venomous snake, right? And then, then he remembers the, the word of the Lord via Moses. There's a snake on a pole right here in the camp. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And he looks at the pole and he's healed. This happens over and over. Hundreds of times, maybe. Maybe the same person experiences this more than once. Maybe they see it happen to other people. They hear them yell, ouch, in Hebrew, or other words like that. And they see the results of what happens. They either acknowledge in obedience what God said to do, or they don't. And the choice gives them either death or life. They can, they can hear it from within their tent. So you're in your tent and you hear someone cry out. But then they witness people that should be dead, that are alive. They're surrounded by deadly creatures. But they have a remedy for what happens. So what's going on? As we've noted already, there, you know, God had plenty of other options for a, a solution to this problem. So what's with this one? The serpent on the pole is a unique solution that only God could come up with. And here, here's what it requires. It requires the people to recognize that only God can heal them. Only God can heal them. So what does that mean to you and me? Because, you know, you're like me. You're like, Britt, I'm not going to go near snakes, not on purpose. And what do I care about this story? 
As is often the case with Old Testament events or stories, God turns what happens into a message or a valuable teaching moment or an illustration that stands the test of time. It goes forward. The Apostle Paul said exactly that about even this particular event in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 6. He's talking about this specific event. And here's what Paul writes. He says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And then in verse 11, these things happen to them as examples and are written down as warnings for us. So I think we can all stipulate here that this is a really strange event. It's hard to wrap our mind around this. But God's word in the New Testament says that this is given as an example to us. There's something that we can learn from it, and it illustrates a basic and fundamental tenet of Christianity. Because Jesus refers to this event in Israel's history to contextualize the gospel. He uses this event to contextualize the gospel. Now, when I say gospel, I mean the good news. In Christianity, when we use the word gospel, we're, we're talking about the, the good news of God's love for everybody. The provision that God has made for broken sinners that he made through his son, Jesus Christ. The good news is that the unrighteous can become righteous in God's sight. In fact, everyone is unrighteous, the Bible says, and must be made righteous by the Son of God. So that's the gospel. And then when I say contextualize, I mean that often to help somebody understand understand a complex idea or an idea that they're unfamiliar with or an idea or a concept in its context, it can be helpful to compare it to something that is similar or known to the person that you're trying to explain it to. It's saying, well, it's like, you guys do that, like you're, you're trying to explain something to your kids about math or about science. It's like, well, it's just like this. It's, that's what contextualizing means. And contextualizing can help in understanding a biblical concept or theology or a value or an emotion. And that's what Jesus does with this story to help a Jewish religious leader, you might have heard his name, Nicodemus, understand the gospel. Now, you probably know John 3.16. I won't ask you to stand and quote it. But do you know what context Jesus said that in? Um, in John 3.1, John writes, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he, he goes on in verse 2, he says, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. Now, this is, this is revolutionary for him to say this to Jesus because he's a Pharisee. And this is, this is about a month from the time that Jesus is crucified. And so Nicodemus, this is why Nicodemus is coming to him at night. He's, and he's admitting to him, we know that you're a teacher that's come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied very well, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. So Nicodemus comes secretly because, because he's a Pharisee. And he can't afford this, this social... Uh, consequences that would come if he would admit before his colleagues 
what he thinks about Jesus. And in secret, though, he, he privately says something about Jesus that no Pharisee would ever do publicly. But when Jesus says to him, um, uh, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again, he's confused by what Jesus says. This different religion that comes from his tradition. And in verse 4, he says, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases and you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Now, as a modern Christian, you and I are from probably familiar with many of these concepts, flesh versus spirit, born again, being born of the spirit. But these are too new for Nicodemus to grasp, as brilliant of a man as he must have been in order to be a Pharisee. So in verse 9, he says, how can this be? And then Jesus throws some shade at him. In verse 10, he says, you're Israel's teacher. And you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Then, here it is, an event Nicodemus would totally have grasped that he was taught from his childhood. Only now Jesus applies it to what he's trying to teach Nicodemus in the moment. In verse 14, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. He says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you know this story. Do you see what I'm saying? There's only one way to be saved, by looking to me in faith when I'm lifted up, upon a cross. Then Jesus breaks that down in the verse that we're all familiar with, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What Jesus did here is he contextualized the gospel for Nicodemus. And we don't know. Was he confused after that? Did he understand it? But if he, didn't, if he did not get it then, I imagine Nicodemus getting it when Jesus was crucified just about a month after this conversation. It had to all coalesce in his brain. So Jesus used a common story of his audience to explain an uncommon one. Now, that story is not going to work with your golf buddies out on the golf course. That's not their context, right? And you know, virtually every time we give the gospel, we'll need to contextualize it to our modern time, to help people understand it, to explain the gospel to them, not just throw Bible verses at them. So let me tie it all together for you in case you're like totally lost. You need to slap your neighbor right now to make sure everyone's with me? There's a snake on the pole, on a pole in the desert. And Jesus brings that story forward in a conversation with Nicodemus. 
And what we take from that today is what it means to be a Christian. Someone who has responded to the gospel. And there are four truths that emerge from this story that helped Nicodemus understand the gospel. And I think it's going to help us understand it as well. There's four truths of the gospel. These are in your notes. Number one, they realized that they were stricken with a fatal problem. The Israelites didn't have to be convinced at this point that they were just going to have a headache after being bitten. They realized they had a fatal problem. They were going to die. They saw their friends die. And you know, the gospel demands that we recognize that sin is deadly. Romans 6.23, the Apostle Paul writes, the wages of sin is death. That is the payment of sin. The, The thing that sin earns is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, the Bible teaches that sin entered the world in the garden. And ever since that moment, human beings have been born with a sin nature. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And I know, like, it's very popular today for people to say, oh, no, people by nature, they're good. But if that's true, then explain to me why there's such division in the world. Explain to me why we're watching two wars with horrific consequences occur in our modern time. Explain to me why there's so much oppression and misogyny. Explain to me why the prison industry is huge in this country. Why we, why we have to have law enforcement to make sure that everybody stays on the straight and narrow. And why, do we, and why we have to have massive court systems. If, if, if human beings are by nature good, then explain to me why from birth we have to teach our kids to share their toys rather than go around and conk other kids on the head with them. <laughs> right? It's because we all have been bitten with the venom of selfishness, of me first, of greed. We're sinners. Now, if you don't, if you don't believe, believe that, you're going to have a problem. Um, if you don't believe that you have this problem, then you're never going to take the next step, which is number two. They realized they were powerless to save themselves. They had a fatal disease. And then number two, they realized they were pow- powerless to save themselves. See, the Israelites had no antivenom. They had no emergency action that they could take to save themselves. There was no snake bite kit cut two X's on the fang marks and suck out the poison. Doctor says you're going to die. That's what your friends say. Um, If they didn't follow through on God's provision here, they died right there. And the gospel demands that we acknowledge that we are incapable of saving ourselves. Romans 3.20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. There's none of us that, no one can be so good as to to perform their way into God's good graces. We are incapable of living a perfect life. We all have sin. We have different sins. A lot of us have the same sins. Some of us have more sin than others. But whatever sin we have, it condemns us before God. And if you don't believe that you have a deadly problem, then you will never acknowledge that you need God 
that you're incapable of saving yourself. And if that's true, then you'll never take the next step, which is number three. They realized that they must turn to God in repentance. They must turn to God in repentance. In verse seven, the people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray, take this, these snakes away. So here we see the people confessing that they had sinned, acknowledging the just judgment before God and declaring their, their willingness to turn entirely to God for their rescue. And what does God do in response? Exactly what they asked. And that is always what God does every time a sinner comes to him in humble, humble repentance. The gospel demands repentance before belief. We have a deadly problem. We cannot save ourselves. And we must turn in repentance to God. Jesus announced his coming this way in Mark 1.15. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now we, some of us, we bristle at that word, right? Repentance. Sounds like so archaic. Um, as human beings, I think it's hard for us sometimes to admit that we need God and we need to turn from some of the things that we're involved in, the things that are deep in our heart. But I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what this word repentance means. It's not self-loathing. Um, that's fear causes that. And it's not what Tim Keller calls religious repentance, which is just the repentance you, you, uh, you know, manifest when you got caught only because you got caught. And it's not a self-righteous repentance either, uh, where you use the word repent and repentance a lot in general, but you never really apply it to yourselves. You mainly apply it and bitterly, to others and bitterly judge them. Repentance is admitting that you're lost without God, that you need help. I don't know, have you, have you ever gotten totally lost? like literally lost, like even, even with modern GPS, you ever get lost using that? It takes you the wrong way. Uh, this year, we were on vacation with our trailer heading up north, and we were on the freeway, and it was, you know, stop and go like it always is. And um, our modern GPS took us off an exit into Griffith Park in L.A., and then it drove us, it took us all the way through Griffith Park. And, you know, we're driving along and people are like looking at us like, what is a trailer doing here, you know? <laughs> and uh, finally, uh, you know, the thing was spinning around and around. And I just looked at Cindy and I said, we, we got to get back on the freeway where we belong. That's repentance. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that admission of the need to go back to what I'm supposed to be, what I'm, what I'm made to be. You know, one of our problems today is I think we're constantly trying to invite people into faith in Christ, into following Jesus without repentance. And what, the, what ends up happening is um, Jesus becomes a helpful addition to your life. 
He becomes one of your many counselors and voices. You know, the Israelites didn't think that way in their repentance. There was no way they could hold on to their stubborn ways and be saved. It was their true repentance that motivated them to the next step. As foolish and illogical as it must have seemed to them at the time, which is number four, they realized that they must follow God's instruction to be saved. They must follow God's instruction to be saved. What did God tell them once they were bitten? Look at the snake on the pole. That's all you have to do. But it's what you must do in order to live. Was the intent here to just get them to follow some inanimate object? No. It was to obey the words of the living God, which was their problem from the beginning, right? Do you think this all made sense to them in the moment? Maybe. But I think they saw the reality of it. I think they saw that people were living who turned to God. Now, they could have gotten all the way to number four, acknowledgement of God. And, you know, they could have, like, realized they had a fatal disease. They could have realized the consequences of that disease. And they could have even said, you know, I'd, I really should take the next step. Um, but at step four, they could have said, ah, oh, you know, that doesn't really make sense to me. Or that idea is so archaic. I mean, we're living in the Bronze Age. The gospel demands that we accept God's plan to save us through Jesus. The gospel demands that we accept God's plan, God's plan to save us through Jesus. See, when someone realizes their sinful condition and then understands that that condition means death, and then is, with that understanding is willing to abandon their own solution and turn back to God, and then cast not just their eyes, but their entire hope on Jesus, God saves them. That's the good news. Jesus, or Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will what? Will what? Live. Romans 10, 9, Paul writes, if you declare with your mouth the Lord, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise of God. I'm going to invite the band come up to come up. And you know, while they do, the Israelites, they had, they had no idea that one day this thing that was happening to them, that was saving them, would once for all, through Jesus, save others. And that this actual event, Jesus would talk about it to someone of their tradition that, that almost perfectly explains what it means to be a Christian. Jesus is the ultimate anti-venom for the serpent of sin. And the bronze snake shows to the people, one, their sin. Um, to, to only see your sin without the grace of God leads to despair. I have no place to turn. But it's also true that to only see God's grace and not your sin leads to spiritual arrogance. It leads to pride. 
at least to doing it your way with God as your buddy. But true conversion occurs when people see their sin, they see their brokenness, and they turn to God in faith. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And God requires that every person that's going to have a relationship with him go through that process to acknowledge that we're broken and to turn to him in faith, to repent and believe. That's the beautiful gospel. Those, these two things converge, repentance and belief, repentance and grace. They converge to create the, the new creation, the person who is in Christ. I don't know if, you know, I look out at our audience today and I, I know so many of your faces and uh, I know that there's a lot of Christians in this room that have, that have done that. I did it on September 24th, 1972 from the back row of a huge Baptist church. Um, I'm not going to ask you to do that. But if you've never just stopped for a moment in your life and said, you know, God, I, I realize I'm a sinner and uh, I need the saving grace of Jesus Christ in my life. You can do that right, right where you are. You don't even have to like bow your head. You can just say it. You don't have to say it loud. But when you do that, just like the Israelites that turned to the, to the bronze snake, you're saved just like that. Healed. And that's how God heals sinners. I, uh, I encourage you to do that. I'm going to pray in a minute, and I'm just going to give a moment of silence before I do. And if you would like to just pray in your heart, just acknowledge that you're a sinner and that thank God for his grace and receive salvation through Jesus. That's what God wants for every human being. Many of us have done that, and you know, there's another picture of uh, the gospel, and that's communion. And if uh, we're going to take communion together as a church, if you did not get a little communion kit when you came in, just raise your hand. Ushers will bring you one. Um, there's a hand over here, you guys. One down here. Um, while, while they're doing that, remember, like this tradition comes from the Last Supper. Jesus with his disciples. And he, he said two things about these elements. He, he talked about his body being broken like the bread, and he broke the bread. And he talked about his blood being shed as the wine. And in that picture, we have the incredible cost of salvation that Jesus suffered the breaking of his body. He suffered what we would call torture um, as the son of God. And his blood was shed on our behalf to cover our sin. That's, and when, when Jesus had this last supper with his disciples, he, was, he said, every time you, you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do it to remember me. And I think, you know, as we go on in life and we get busy, we've been Christians for five years, 10 years, 30 years, 40 years. We can, we can kind of forget. And 
So in this moment, those of us that are believers, I want us to stop. And in this moment of prayer, we're going we're gonna to remember our salvation. We're going to remember our sin and God's grace together. And for those that have never received Christ, you've never just acknowledged your sinfulness and your need of God's grace, I'm going to ask you to do that silently as we pray. We pray with me. God, we, we lift these words to you. <clears throat> and we come from so many different backgrounds and situations right now. There are those here that have never stepped across that line of faith, and I pray that your spirit would nudge them. For those of us who have, we want to take this moment to thank you, to be amazed by you, and to be grateful deep within our spirit for salvation, for something that we could never do on our own. Thank you, God, for giving your son on our behalf. Amen. Let's uh, break our bread together. Jesus said, um, take heat. This is my body broken for you. And as he passed the cup around, he said, this is a cup that represents my new covenant, the blood, my blood that was shed for your sin. As often as you do this, do this to remember me. Thank God. Let's stand and worship together, church. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.